people say. Amen. You may be seated. So thankful for the opportunity to step into the pulpit today while our pastor is away with his family at some needed vacation with their family. And so I want to invite you this morning, if you've got your Bible, to open to two passages. The first is in Genesis chapter 12, and the second is in Acts chapter 8. Our primary text this morning will be Acts 8, but we want to start in Genesis chapter 12. As we prayed a little bit earlier, this coming weekend is Prince Cares. This is uh, something that God placed on our hearts a number of years ago as a way to equip and to mobilize our church to live an outward life on mission in our community by partnering with some of our local partnerships and also some of the ministries that we ourselves began that we would be engaged as a church family in serving our community, sharing the gospel with our community in hopes that we would bring joy to our community. That's what the gospel does. And so as we have done that, though, a question kind of has resonated in my mind and a question that's kind of plagued me a little bit. And the question is this, what would happen if Prince Avenue closed its doors for good? What if our church decided that we would disband and that we would close our doors, sell this facility, and it became, you know, an educational institution or a government institution, whatever it may be, but it ceased to exist as a church? And the question is this, would our community even notice all of the thousands of people that drive up and down Highway 78 each and every day would they notice that Prince Avenue Baptist Church did no, no longer existed? Or would they even care? Would it, would it really make any meaningful difference in their lives if this church ceased to exist? I mean, that's a, that's a really perplexing question, isn't it? Because the reality is that church statisticians tell us that every year over 4,000 churches do indeed close their doors for good. Think about that. In the United States, 4,000 churches close their doors every year. And contrast that with the fact that only 1,000 new churches are started each and every year. So that's a net decline of 3,000 churches in our country every single year. Statisticians also tell us that over 2.7 million uh, church members will fall into inactivity in the next year. That's a lot of decline in our churches. Even in our own Southern Baptist Convention, one of the things that we're noticing is a rapid decline in baptisms each and every year in our own gospel-proclaiming denomination. In fact, in the last 10 years, Protestant denominations have lost over 5 million members. And get this, the United States now ranks number three in the world behind China and India as having the most non-believing people in its borders. And half of all churches in the United States did not add any new members in the last two years. Half. That's disturbing, isn't it? That ought to be alarming that the church of Jesus Christ that's been given this incredible message called the gospel is not 
fulfilling its mission, its God-given mission to proclaim the gospel, to share the gospel in its communities and in its nations so that we can see more people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, I know that's some bad news, but let me just share some good news with you for a moment because I'm so thankful for Prince Avenue Baptist Church and the fact that Prince takes the mission of God very seriously. In fact, we're involved all over the world. You may have been here a couple of weeks ago when we commissioned a young lady who's going to the middle, to North Africa to share the gospel in a predominantly Muslim country. We also have missionaries that are serving right now in the Middle East, taking the good news of the gospel. In Europe, we're actively planting a church in Manchester, England, among North African and Middle Eastern Muslims. You know who our, our primary church planting partner is there? Our Hispanic pastor, Carlos Baca, it's his brother who's serving in Manchester, a Peruvian man who's a missionary in the UK planting a church among Middle Eastern Muslims. Isn't that awesome? I love that. And we get to be a part of it. Not only that, we're working in Romania. We're working in Moldova, in Africa. We're working in Rwanda and Burundi and Uganda. In the Americas, we're working in Nicaragua, Peru, and Mexico. In Asia, we're working actively in Nepal and Malaysia and India and Japan. Even in our own North America, we sent teams last year to Utah and to Boston and to Sturgis. And even locally, you saw on the sheet there, we have dozens of partnerships that we work through locally so that we can get the gospel to people here in our own community. Why does all this matter? Why do we give so much to missions? Why do we talk so much about missions? Why is the mission of God so significant? I want to take you to Genesis 12, because a promise that was given to Abraham thousands of years ago in Genesis 12 is the reason we do all of this. Look what the scripture tells us. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. Now, stop right there for just a moment, because it's interesting. God is sending out Abram. He doesn't know where he's going, but God's got a mission for him. Think about the Great Commission. Go into all the world, right? God is a sending God. Let me just tell you, every single one of us who claims the name of Jesus here this morning is sent by God to be on mission with God. That's not just for the Kaylee Galvins of the world. That's for each and every one of us who claim the name of Jesus. And so God is saying to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. Stop again. God is saying to Abraham, Abram, I'm going to pour my favor upon you. I'm going to pour my blessing upon you. Why? Glad you asked. Look at the next part. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and in and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, God is saying to Abram, I'm going to bless you because through your seed and through your offspring, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Now that promise was fulfilled when the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ came in Bethlehem. God fulfilled that promise. I'm going to send my Messiah. He is going to give his life for the sins of all mankind and through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. 
And as we read prophetically in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 7, what do we see? We see that there will be people from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue, and they're going to be gathered around King Jesus, in, around his throne, and they're going to, be, going to be giving him praise and adoration that he alone is due. Amen? So that is why God blessed Abram, so that all the nations of the earth, including us sitting here today, would be blessed. Now, there's a principle here I don't, don't want you to miss, and it's this, is that God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others. And yes, that includes financial blessing. Coming up in a few weeks, we're going to talk about our global mission offering. God has blessed us so that we can bless others. But it's so much more than that. I want you to think mostly about spiritual blessing, right? You were blessed at some point in your life to hear the gospel. Maybe you came up in a home where you had godly parents who taught you about Jesus at a young age. Certainly, you have the opportunity to be a church, blessed to be a church, in a church like Prince Avenue, where you hear the gospel proclaimed each and every week. But at some point, you heard and responded to the gospel, and you had your sins forgiven, and you were given new life in Christ. Is there any blessing greater than that? No. That is indeed the greatest blessing of all. But why did God bless you with the gift of salvation? Was it so that you and I could gather each and every Sunday and declare, yet not I, but Christ in me, that we could celebrate the goodness and glory of God? Is that the reason that we were saved, is just so that we could gather each and every Sunday? The answer is no, that's not the reason. That may be a reason, certainly, that we would give glory and praise and honor to God, but it's not the only reason. God has blessed us so that we can, in turn, be a vehicle of blessing to others. Meaning, if God has been so gracious to give me the gift of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, then I want to be a vehicle. I want to be a conduit of that blessing to other people. I don't want to be selfish with the gift. I want to share it with other people. So the mission of our lives and the mission of this church, listen, is to be a blessing to our neighbors, to our community, and ultimately to the nations. That's why God has blessed us. God has blessed us so that we would be a blessing to others around us. And my desire is that we would understand, listen, church, my desire is that we would understand the magnitude of the blessing that we've received, that we would understand the magnitude of the salvation that we have received through Christ and what he's done for us, that it would propel us outward. Because the more we understand the goodness of God and the grace of God and what he's done for us in Christ, we will want then to go out and declare that to other people. I'm convinced a person that never shares their faith does not understand the magnitude of the grace of God in their lives. They don't. Because the more you understand what Christ has done for you, the more you're going to want to tell others about it. We've been blessed to be a blessing. And that's exactly what the book of Acts is all about. In fact, in Acts chapter one, we see the outline of the book of Acts, Acts 1.8. What does Jesus tells his disciples before he ascends to heaven? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Okay, now stop right there. Jesus says, you're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I would call that blessing, wouldn't you? 
The Holy Spirit comes upon you. You receive the power of God in your life. That's blessing. But then Jesus goes on, he says, so that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and all Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, the outline of the book of Acts is that you've been blessed so that you can be a blessing to others. Now, interesting fact here. Acts 1.8 is the outline of the book of Acts, right? And the first place that the gospel is going to go is to Jerusalem. And we see that all throughout these early chapters in the book of Acts that Peter's preaching, thousands of people are being saved. God is doing miraculous and amazing things in Jerusalem. But it's not until Acts chapter 8 that the gospel leaves Jerusalem, that the gospel leaves Jerusalem. And there's a reason why. And it's because of some intense persecution that breaks out against the church. But as we read this text this morning, I want us to see that that God uses his church to advance the gospel further than it's ever been before. So let's look at Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and make great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This morning, I want us to see three ways that the gospel advances through our lives and through the church. The first is this, the gospel advances through suffering. Now that doesn't sound very exciting. That doesn't kind of evoke a lot of amens, does it? But the truth is, that's exactly what happens here. There's persecution that takes place. Now, it may sound a little counterintuitive at first to think that the gospel advances through suffering, right? Wouldn't it make more sense that the gospel would be more attractive when things are going really well in our lives, like we're making straight A's? The gospel's really attractive. You know, we get a raise. Yeah, God's blessing's upon me, right? I got a new wife or a new husband, right? I mean, there's so many ways that we would think that the gospel would be more attractive. And that's what prosperity gospel teachers would want you to believe. But the scripture teaches something very different. The scripture actually teaches that the gospel is more powerful and more appealing when believers are suffering and going through trials and tribulations. Look, look what it says here in verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Now, that word persecution is a very interesting word. It comes from a Greek word that means to hunt down like a wild animal. There's a sense in which the believers are being hunted down. They're being imprisoned. They're being tortured for their faith in Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice what happens as a result of this persecution that these believers are experiencing. Look what it goes on to say. And they were all scattered 
throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. They were scattered. That word scattered there means to spread like seed. So God is actually spreading out his church into new areas. Now, it was Tertullian, the church father, that said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What he meant by that is that the more persecution takes place, the more the gospel begins to spread. And that's exactly what's taking place here. What Satan is trying to do, seeking to do, to destroy the church, God is actually doing to advance the church. And listen, it is through the vehicle of suffering that the gospel now is going into regions that it had never gone into before, Judea and Samaria. Remember, it was in Jerusalem before. But now, through the vehicle of the suffering of the body of Christ, the gospel is going and spreading further than it ever has before. Listen to me, church. The same thing is happening today. Did you know that? In fact, uh, Operation World, you can look this up, Operation World, which keeps a lot of stats as far as global missions is concerned, tells us that the church in China and the church in Iran are the fastest growing churches in the world. What do they have in common? Persecution. And it's under that threat of persecution that God is actually using to advance the gospel. I want to share with you a story that I read just a few days ago. It's about a man named Farin. He was a pastor in Iran, and he was arrested for his faith. And I just, I just want to read you this story because I think it kind of paints a picture of what we're talking about here. He said it was 7 a.m. on October 5th, 2012. Police were beating on our door. Fifteen police burst in. They were wearing masks. The police ransacked our house, searching everywhere for Bibles and other incriminating evidence of our Christian faith. We've got questions for you, they said. You'll be our guests for a day or two. I was driven across town, thrown into a cell, and they handed me prison clothes. And I said, I'll just keep my own clothes. Since you said I'm only going to be here a day or two, they said, no, that won't work. Change into these. They increased the pressure on me day by day. By the end of the first week, I was in solitary confinement. And I remained there for two months. I was taken for interrogation whenever they felt like it, day and night. They knew I led a house church, and they knew most of our members. Still, they wanted more information. One time, they threatened to drug me to get me to speak. I was terrified. Then they tried a new tactic. Early one morning, they took me blindfolded to an underground interrogation room. There, I was tied to a bed with my hands and feet. Suddenly, they started pouring freezing water over my feet. I didn't know what was happening. Then they started to lash the soles of my feet. I could handle the first lash and the second, but from the third lash onwards, I thought I would die from the pressure. Each strike sent my body into convulsions. Finally, I cried out to God, please, one more lash and my faith will fail. At that very moment, the smell of cologne entered the room and I heard whispering. The lashing ended. I was returned to my cell. Eventually, after three months in detention, I was released on bail. I lived under great pressure as I waited to be summoned. It was a year later in that court that I discovered how God had answered my prayer. As I entered the courtroom, I smelled the same smell of cologne from the interrogation room, and my stomach sank. It was the cologne of one of the interrogators. All my pains and screams had returned. The interrogator revealed in that moment in the courtroom 
My interrogator revealed that I had been due 30 lashes, but after 22, he had entered and said, enough, no more. And he said, I realized in that moment that God had answered my prayer in that moment, and I was spared. The story goes on to tell us that Farid left Iran and went to a neighboring country where he continued to, pray, uh, to preach the gospel. Listen to this as it closes this story. Fardin thrived and went on to serve five churches in that region. Through his ministry, more than 425 people have been baptized in the last three years. These new believers have helped reach others back in Iran. Iran's authorities tried to crush Fardin, but instead they became, he has become more effective in the kingdom of God than ever before. That's exactly what God does. God uses persecution to actually advance the effectiveness of the gospel. Now, stop here with me for a moment, because I know what some of you are thinking. Yeah, I understand persecution's happening over there. I get that, right? But what does that have to do with me in Bogart, Georgia? Thank God we don't live under the threat of that kind of persecution. Amen? I hope you're thankful for that. I'm thankful for that. But it still, it still does matter today how we respond to suffering and struggle in our lives. What I mean by that is that is this, is that the gospel still advances through our suffering. Let me explain how. First, suffering opens doors for the gospel. Look over in Philippians chapter one, if you will. Philippians chapter one. Suffering opens doors for the gospel. You know, Paul was imprisoned multiple times for his faith. And in the book of Philippians, we see his writing from prison and he is encouraging the believers out of his imprisonment. And this is what he says in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He said, my suffering, my imprisonment is used by God to advance the gospel. And he says, how? So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the uh, word without fear. What Paul is saying is this, is that God's using my imprisonment to advance the gospel. I've had the opportunity to share the gospel with the guards. And not only that, other believers have heard about my suffering and they've been strengthened and encouraged to speak the word of God more boldly as well. So Paul is acknowledging here that the gospel advances through suffering. There's another thing I want you to see about how the gospel advances through suffering is this, is that suffering is a way to show that Jesus is our greatest treasure. Look over at 2 Corinthians chapter four, 2 Corinthians chapter four. Beginning in verse seven, Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He goes on, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed and not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. 
What Paul is saying is this. We have this treasure, namely Christ, that's in this jar of clay. And folks, listen, that is what we are. We are jars of clay, amen? We are frail. We are susceptible to being broken very, very easily, right? But we have this treasure. And Paul's saying all the persecution that comes against us is for us to show that, that Jesus is the greater treasure. So I want to urge you this morning, don't waste your suffering. You may be going through a really difficult trial right now. You may be going through some kind of physical suffering, a diagnosis of some sort. You may be going through some kind of financial trial right now, some relational trial, something going on in your family. There's so many stories of suffering and struggle in this congregation. Can I urge you, can I plead with you to recognize that that suffering is a tool that God wants to use for you to be a blessing to other people? I was talking to a man recently who had been on an extended stay in the hospital. And he just talked about how God had given him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to tell nurses about Jesus and doctors about Jesus. That's a man that did not waste his suffering. I love that. And that's how the gospel is advanced. In fact, we have to really, listen, as a church, we have to guard against prosperity. Prosperity is the greatest enemy to gospel advancement. You realize that? Because prosperity leads us to a place of lethargy and complacency. So I'm not saying we ought to seek suffering, but understand when it comes our way, when trials come our way, let God use that as a tool for you to be a witness to others. The gospel advances through suffering. Second thing I want you to see this morning is this. The gospel advances through sharing. Back in Acts chapter 8 again, and I love this part. Notice what happens as they are scattered in verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. <laughs> I love that. So they're under persecution, they're under trials, but as they're going out, they're proclaiming Christ. In fact, the word preaching there is where we, the, the Greek word is evangelio, evangelizo. That's where we get the word evangelism. Now, evangelism is sharing good news, right? So I want you to understand that this proclamation and good news go hand in hand. And so as they're going out under persecution, they're proclaiming the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done to rescue people from sin and death. That's what they're doing. They're going out and they're proclaiming the message of good news. And you know why they're doing that? Because we're all hardwired to share good news. I want you to think about it for a moment. How many of you have received some good news in the last month? Just some good news. Let me see your hand. Did you tell somebody about that? I almost guarantee you did. <laughs> in fact, I'm going to share you a little bit of good news with you right now. Did you know that I found out just a few weeks ago that I'm going to be a grandfather? Yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. April 27, 2020, I'm going to be a grandfather. And I'll never forget Brother Bill saying this, that being a grandparent is the reward you receive for not killing your kids. Okay? Now, I don't know if that's true yet. I'll find out, but I keep hearing that over and over and over again. But I'm pretty excited about being a granddad, right? Now, that's fun to share that. I've been sharing that. In fact, I was sharing that before I was told I wasn't supposed to share it, okay? <clears throat> but I did because I was excited. Understand this. 
That's what we do with good news. We share good news, amen? But often as believers, we don't. We've received the greatest news ever heard, ever known to mankind, and yet we keep it silent. Listen, God wants us to be ambassadors for Christ. He wants us to be on mission. And it says in verse five that they proclaim to them the Christ. And uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 10, how can they... How can they hear unless someone tells them? We have the privilege, church. We have the responsibility, church, of proclaiming, telling the good news. Let me ask you, when's the last time you told someone about Jesus? Listen, I thank God for Bill Scar. You say, who's Bill Scar? Bill Scar was my youth pastor who came to my house when I was 16 years old and told me about Jesus. My life has been changed ever since. Because Bill told me about Jesus. Every single one of you that claims the name of Christ today, someone told you about Jesus. It might have been a parent. It might have been a friend. It might have been a pastor. It doesn't matter. But you heard and you responded and you received Christ. Listen, God wants you to be that same ambassador, representing Jesus, telling others about Jesus. And let me tell you, there's no greater joy than telling someone about Jesus and seeing them come to Christ. Nothing is greater than that, nothing. There's something else interesting about this passage. I want you to notice it in verse five. It says that Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Why, Why is that significant? Well, just a simple observation. It's because Jews and Samaritans got along like oil and water. Jews despised Samaritans. They considered them half-breeds. And yet Philip, being a Jew, although a Hellenistic Jew, went down into Samaria and began to proclaim Jesus to the Samaritan people there. In other words, what Philip was doing is he was crossing cultural barriers to take the gospel to others. He was going where it was uncomfortable to take Jesus to others. And can I suggest to you the same thing is true for you and me? Evangelism is not some clean little neat thing that we do. When we are on mission with God, you know what that ta- where that takes us? That takes us into messy relationships. That, that takes us into relationships with people that don't think like we think. It takes us into relationships with people that don't vote like we vote. It takes us into relationships that are uncomfortable for us. But if we are going to be on mission with God, we've got to be willing to step into those kinds of relationships. I was having breakfast with a friend of mine last week who lives in New England. And he was telling me about a ministry that he's doing on campus there that has put him around a lady that is living a a lifestyle completely um, opposed to what scripture teaches. And he said, Sky, I believe God's calling me to invite her and her partner over to our house for dinner so that we can just love on them and share with them. He said, I know it's gonna be messy. It's gonna be uncomfortable. We're gonna have things that we don't agree on. He said, but I really believe God's calling us to do this. I'm like, amen, amen. I love that, that you're willing to enter into messiness, things that are uncomfortable. Why? For the sake of taking the gospel to others, to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus with others. May we be the kind of people May we be the kind of church that's willing to enter into the messiness of other people's lives so that we can bring them Jesus. 
Listen to me. The gospel is advanced not only through suffering, but through sharing, through sharing. There's one final truth I want you to see this morning, and then we'll close. And that is that the gospel advances through serving, through serving. I want you to notice that God used Philip not only to share the gospel with people, but to serve them by meeting their physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. Look at verse 6. It says, And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. Now, that's important. They were paying attention to what he was saying. He was preaching the gospel to them. Notice this next part. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. And I've underlined that in my mind. When they heard him and I underlined when they saw the signs. And what I noticed by that is this, is that they heard the gospel and then they saw it demonstrated. The gospel was declared and the gospel was demonstrated. Gospel declaration, gospel demonstration. Gospel declaration, gospel demonstration. Both of those things are key. They were serving, he was serving the people. Now, before you get too freaked out, I know demons were coming out here, people are being healed and all of that kind of stuff. A couple observations on that. One is this, we always see supernatural signs and wonders when the gospel goes into a new area. When you read the book of Acts, when it goes into a new area, it's usually accompanied by signs and wonders, okay? The second thing I notice about this is that God is using an ordinary man. Philip was just, he was a deacon in the church, okay? He was not an apostle, he was a deacon. And he's, he's just a normal guy, but God is using him to meet people's needs. So don't get caught up on the supernatural nature of this moment. Recognize that Philip is being used by God to proclaim the gospel and to demonstrate the gospel. He's meeting needs. You see, anytime we make ourselves available to God to meet needs, God uses it and it opens new doors of opportunity to share with them. Oscar Thompson, uh, a book that I read years and years ago, he's with the Lord now, basically said this. He said, love is meeting needs. Like if we're gonna love people, we gotta meet their needs. And that's exactly what we do. So in other words, when we serve other people, Guess what? We point them to Jesus. That's why this matters. Prince cared. That's why this matters. We, we realize that one weekend is not going to change everything, but it's a start. It's a way for us to get outside of our comfort zone, to get in the vol- involved in the lives of other people and begin to meet needs by serving them. Why do we do that? because we want them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we serve them and as we share with them, God works powerfully. As we declare the gospel and as we demonstrate the gospel, God moves powerfully. In fact, look back at the text here. I love this. Verse eight, and this is really the key of the entire message. As the people heard the gospel declared and as they saw the gospel demonstrated, look what happens. So there was much joy in that city. Not just a little bit of joy, not just a little sprinkling of joy. There was much joy in the city, meaning that people were being freed from their bondage. People were getting their needs met. They were hearing the gospel. Their lives were being transformed and they were excited about Jesus. That's what happens when the church is being the church on mission. When we are going out and we are declaring and we are demonstrating the gospel of Jesus Christ to our community and to this world, it will bring joy. 
It'll bring joy in our lives, and it'll bring joy to those around us. Listen, there needs to be much joy. There needs to be much joy in this community and in this world because Prince Avenue Baptist Church exists. Amen? There needs to be. There needs to be much joy in your office because God's put you there. Students, listen to me. There needs to be much joy on your campus because you, as a follower of Jesus, are demonstrating and declaring the gospel right where God has you. Businessman or woman, there needs to be much joy in your office because you are there. And the way that you're serving and the way that you're sharing, people see Jesus and and it brings joy. God wants to bring much joy through his people, through his church. Are we willing? Are we willing to enter into that? Are we willing to say, God, I want you to be used by, uh, by, I want you to use me. I want you to fill me and use me in the lives of other people. I mean, really, that's our choice to either say, here I'm, here am I, God, send me, or I'm just going to stay comfortable and complacent. God forbid that that ever be the case. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Let me ask you this morning, is your life marked by joy? You can't give to others what you yourself don't possess. Meaning, you, if you yourself are not walking with Jesus and you don't personally know Jesus, how can you bring joy to other people? So if you don't know Christ today, I want to beg you, plead with you, urge with you, give your life to him. In just a minute, we're going to stand and there are going to be counselors all down the front here. And every single one of them can talk to you about how you can know joy by knowing Jesus. We'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe you're here this morning and you already know Jesus, but God's just stirring up in you a desire to make him known to others. I just want to encourage you to come this morning. The altars are open. Maybe there's someone that doesn't know Christ that's in your life. And God just wants you to pray for them that much joy would come to their life. Maybe you just want to come and pray for one of these Prince Cares projects, that God would use it to bring much joy to those who are served and those who hear the gospel. Whatever the case may be, let's respond to the leadership of the Holy Spirit this morning. Father, we give you this time and we ask that you would work in and through it, God. We surrender ourselves to you today, God. We want you to use us to demonstrate, to declare the gospel to others. We want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. So we surrender ourselves today for your glory. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.